0: Before I begin this episode I would like to just say something to all listeners. As many of you may have heard or seen due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic my career as a joiner is over and in just a few weeks time I will be unemployed. Hermetics began as a side project which has since taken off and as such I think it's about time I turned it into everything it can and should be. I am asking listeners, supporters and those who have enjoyed Hermetics is content to donate what they can to my Patreon. The first stretch goal is already at 50% of what I need to turn this into a sustainable living. With these donations, however, come an array of benefits. Weekly episodes as opposed to uh, ongoing series, secondary series on esotericism and continental philosophy, ebooks and paperbacks, an active Discord server complete with discussions with guests, weekly, weekly bo- blog posts and more. I understand times are hard, but at this juncture I am extremely grateful of anything you can spare to keep this project going. There are details and links relating to how you can support Hermitix in the description below. The most effective way to support the podcast, however, is to go to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash Hermitix. Thank you very much. This week I'm joined once again by engineer, writer and blogger Dmitry Orlov. He is the author of The Five Stages of Collapse, shrinking the technosphere, and most recently, the meat generation. Links to Orlov's work can be found in the description below. This episode, we talk about the ongoing coronavirus epidemic in relation to politics, economics, and global culture. Enjoy. Okay, so Dmitry Orlov, uh, thanks once again for joining us uh, for this third coronavirus special with uh, world-renowned collapse experts, so thanks very much.
1: Good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me back.
0: Um, so, as far as I'm aware, I mean, I didn't email you about this, but are you still living uh, on your, your sailing boat? Where, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment?
1: Uh, we moved to St. Petersburg, Russia. Our son became uh, old enough to go to school, and the place we decided for him to go to school is St. Petersburg, Russia. So now we're living on land in St. Petersburg.
0: Um, was Was that... How long ago till we, did you uh, transition from sea to land?
1: It was uh, a couple of years oh, ago. Oh,
0: okay. So it wasn't sort of unfortunately timed with uh, everything that's going on?
1: No, Aren't... not at all. We, we prepared pretty well okay. for it.
0: So what is it looking like where you are regarding uh, coronavirus?
1: Well, um, the, there are some people on the streets, there's some traffic. Uh, Pharmacies, food stores uh, are open. Uh, Some uh, supermarkets, hypermarkets are open. Um, uh, The the only offices that are open are are, uh, government offices. So uh, for instance, the post office works, but limited hours. A lot of people are wearing face masks. Um, A lot of clinics are working on an emergency basis only. uh, but but otherwise, things are fairly normal. The number of people who are uh, actually, who could be s- said to be sick with coronavirus is, is rather minimal in St. Petersburg. It's a little bit more in Moscow, but it's it's like less than 1%, much less than 1%. Yeah, I haven't
0: seen too many. It seems Russia's taking a different route in terms of coronavirus compared to the rest of the world that sort of taking the, uh, well, the sort of stereotypical Russian thing of Facing it fairly head on is, from at least this is what my understanding of it is from uh, watching British media. So I don't I don't know if it's any different in it from from your perspective there.
1: Well, uh, they're they're taking almost the same approach as the Chinese, uh, which is preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Um, they uh, the the Chinese treated uh, the coronavirus. Uh, pandemic as a a bioterror attack. And so what they did was they executed a a civil defense drill uh, against a bioterror attack. It could be said uh, to be a a dry run for a real bioterror attack. Um, And uh, there are reasons why the Chinese would do that. Uh, The United States has uh, uh, biological weapons laboratories scattered all over the planet. They have it in many parts of the world. They have been caught uh, collecting DNA samples from local populations in various parts of the world. And the only reason one could conceive of for doing that is to create bioweapons to target particular groups of people. Now, uh, just because Americans are wasting money on something or other military doesn't mean that it adds up to anything except uh, a bunch of money being stolen, which is. The, the main purpose of uh, US defense industry is to to let insiders steal all the money they can possibly wish to steal uh, and more but still the Chinese uh, took this rather seriously um, for for a couple of reasons one is um, you know first of all a bioterror attack is not totally to be ruled out because you know the United States wants to dominate the world but they can't do it Uh, through any other military means. They can't do it economically. So what's left for them, except to create various types of uh, terror incidents. And bioterror is about the only thing they have left. It's the only arrow left in their quiver, if you will, except uh, that arrow seems to be broken too. So um, the Russians pretty much did the same thing. And uh, by doing so, and by succeeding, uh, what what they did was create panic in in the West and in the United States in particular. And uh, of course, uh, this, this made it rather obvious that uh, all of these Western institutions are just completely rotten and f- fell apart at the uh, earliest possible provocation of any sort. It didn't help matters that uh, uh, the West has been in recession since last August and facing financial collapse, but in complete denial over the fact, well, this made financial collapse and economic collapse in general rather difficult to ignore.
0: Uh, yeah, so I thought, you know, just to step back on to the bioterror aspect of things here. I mean, I thought the, you know, I, I know you're somewhat of a contrarian one with respect to politics. I mean, you've got this book um, called uh, Everything's Going According to Plan. And this is one of the questions I had here, because a lot of the claims you make there, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to try not inject my own personal bias in many or the majority would consider them what's under the uh, umbrella of conspiracy or conspiratorial claims uh, with regards to it being a bioterror attack or, uh, you know, a dry run. Um, so are the, is, is the American angle with regards to it being a, a bioterror attack, is that your own um, thesis or is that something that's sort of collectively been established?
1: I don't know, and I don't care, and furthermore, it doesn't matter. I have no evidence either way, and I would not conjecture or guess. I'm just saying that the Chinese reacted to it as if it were a bioterror attack, and I'm saying that the Russians did the same thing, and that by doing so, they created so much angst in the West that the West just completely self-destructed.
0: I see. I understand. So when you say that it was a, um, sort of a, something came about due to acts, do you think that it, the, the measures that have been taken are sort of fairly ignorant? Are you, uh, do you believe that it's just more, more like a bad flu and that we could have just continued on without taking these, uh, what many consider sort of totalitarian measures?
1: Well, um, first of all the only measures that work in um in an incident like that a bioterror attack if you will if if that's uh what people have have decided they will respond to it as the only measures that are effective are basically uh, authoritarian measures not totalitarian totalitarian is something else but authoritarian measures. Uh, that's been known for thousands of years. The Romans would elect a dictator when faced with an emergency. That's where the term comes from. The Senate would elect a dictator. So that's a typical emergency response. Um, so there, there isn't really anything to, um, to say about uh, what the virus is because uh, the final tally isn't in yet. Uh, we will know the ultimate fatality rate um, but from what we can sort of uh, conjecture and surmise so far is that in countries where lots of people get tested uh, and and the diagnosis is rather strict, um, it turns out that much fewer than 1% of the population uh, dies from COVID-19, which is the syndrome associated with this virus. Um, and in countries that... Uh, don't test very much, have faulty test systems such as the United States, um, and um, uh, only sometimes test those who are actually sick. And uh, then the coroners write uh, COVID-19 on the death certificate just because it sounds good. Um, not, Not necessarily because the person died of this particular syndrome. A lot of people die from from a lot of different things, right? All the time, Mm -hmm. especially old people. Old people tend to die of old age, but in the modern medical paradigm, uh, people can live forever unless they come up with some kind of a disease. Mm -hmm. Old age isn't enough to die. So Mm -hmm. you you could theoretically live to be 300 years old, provided you're healthy
0: that that that's sort of a way of propagating their own system that they can continuously uh, find you a purchasable cure right
1: well it's it's so that they remain in control you, you can't possibly just choose the time of your dying you, you can't just lay down and, and give up the ghost that's illegal it death is a medical decision um, it's a it's basically a power grab by doctors um, so um, this, this gives them a chance to, to do all, all sorts of manipulative things, like uh, claiming that more people are dying from this COVID-19 than actually are. Uh, there's actually some, some instructions, some memos circulating from uh, centers for, for disease control in the U.S. saying, well, if, if, you, if it looks like COVID-19, just write it in. Um, we won't look at that. Uh, we'll just assume. So. Where nobody gets tested, and where coroners are happy to write in COVID nineteen on the death certificate without actually doing any testing, um, the death rate is arbitrarily high. It could be ten percent, could be higher. But that doesn't mean that it's this virus causing it.
0: So then the question for me would that that arises is why would such a panic be? Uh, then purposely cause or is or is it more a collective of uh, Doctors who are simply too fatigued and too uh, ignorant to sort of uh, Run through the details and actually find out what it is. Is there a do you think there's an overarching reason to? uh, You know to to this conjecture.
1: Oh It's there absolutely is and it's totally obvious Uh, the West has collapsed Western economies have collapsed The United States in particular has gone into financial collapse in the middle of last August, August of 2019, when it suddenly turned out that uh, United States government debt is no longer valid as collateral for a loan, even an overnight loan. And interest rates on so-called repo contracts, uh, repurchase agreements uh, shot up to uh, uh, something like over 10% um, over the prime rate. And and so then uh, uh, the Federal Reserve had had to step in and, and start uh, offering these uh, repo contracts by itself, um, basically supported by the printing press. This was the first step towards monetizing the debt. This is a hyperinflationary measure. And uh, now we're in a state where the Federal Reserve is resorting to pretty much monetizing the entire US debt, all 23 trillion of it, just through the printing press. Of course, they're keeping this money out of the hands of consumers because uh, it would very quickly turn out that there's nothing for these consumers to buy because the products aren't being made in the same quantities that this amount of money would require. Uh, they're, instead, they're just handing it out to their friends in the financial business and large companies, etc. cetera. Um, just basically trying to look like nobody is going bankrupt. But how long that's going to last, I don't know. The reason for the, the whole COVID-19 um, uh, panic, hysteria, et cetera is that it's very difficult for people to come out and say, okay, we've just completely failed. Okay, we, we, we have uh, run the economy into a dead end. Um, it's much easier to declare force majeure because of some virus.
0: So, in what way is it clear? Because, because obviously, to many people, the average person existing, sort of, just as your everyday worker within the economy, everything looks somewhat fine. You know, this is a this is what I guess news pundits would call a downturn, or um, my favorite saying of theirs: negative growth, which I think is fantastic. Um, what do you? Is a clear outline that that the economy's at a dead end in terms that aren't simply abstract the, the actual physical economy in terms of commodities and and physical commodities as you said products what is what are some telltale signs here that that's at a dead end
1: well the telltale signs are published government statistics so um uh... It's very hard to tell what's going on with the US economy because most of the government statistics in the US are a complete forgery and have been for many years, but Germany is a little bit better. Um, uh, and, and the German economy in terms of uh, manufacturing, in terms of the actual physical economy, has seen double digit declines over the past year and more. Uh, year on year, double digit declines. It's basically shrinking. It's, it, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, part of it is malinvestment in, in, in green energy that went on in Germany, which caused electricity rates to shoot up to a point where Germany is just no longer competitive okay. as far as manufacturing. Same thing pretty much has been happening in Japan. Uh, China has seen slowest growth in, in several generations. Uh, same with India. Um, and uh, the UK, it's very hard to tell what's going on because uh, a quarter of the, the UK the UK economy is just financial swindles, you know, City of London shenanigans. So it doesn't really equate to anything physically real anyway. Uh, so as far as people who think that everything is just fine and just humming along, what I have to say to them is keep believing. Sayonara. Goodbye.
0: So in what... Wherein then is going to be the point where it, it because at the moment you know even even if it is collapsing I mean I understand that it's a long process. this is uh, something that's documented by pretty much everyone who's writing about collapse in a very sincere and serious way that it is a long process. But what are the events that would need to happen for the abstraction of of the economy to finally deplete to such a level that it's clear as day, to even, even the layman, you know, when things completely, completely erode and stop?
1: Oh, it depends on the layman. Some people are already clued in, but they're smart enough not to uh, talk to their neighbors about it. Um, while others, well, look, uh, it's been what, over three decades since the collapse of the USSR, but you can still find people in Russia who will uh, talk about how we should bring back the USSR mm-hmm. and everything will be fine once we do. You can find those people. Um, you know, the, the, the psyche, the human psyche is a very fragile thing. If you've been taught one thing all your life and suddenly it turns out that you've been lied to all your life. Um, this is rather harsh and most people uh, have trouble with it. And some people just can never get through the denial and, and get stuck and develop a mental health crisis that can become chronic.
0: So then, what we have then is a structure of sort of normalcy and what people consider normality, which, well, isn't normal. But uh, do you think behind that there is a form of civilization which we can call? You know, was there? Do you believe there's a time in history which we we could call n- normal in uh, sustainable terms?
1: Um, I don't. I don't know whether this is. Useful because first of all, there are different civilizations that follow different paths. So for instance, uh, uh, in, the, in the East, uh, there used to be uh, a feudal system that was very entrenched and la- lasted for thousands of years. And it went through various perturbations in China, you know, there was wholesale population replacement that happened several times. There were occasions where the majority of the population died out. And then the system came back so that i guess was sustainable because it came back every time uh,
0: uh, you said the the term dictator came uh from rome yeah so uh what we what it seems to me that has happened here then because you're saying authoritative and authoritarian measures are what um keeps things such as coronavirus and and uh, pandemics under control is is these measures but what's replaced the dictator now is Sort of bureaucratic rackets, such as uh, governments which you know have 30 people in a committee, etc. etc. And this doesn't, you know, I'm talking primarily of the UK here, but this hasn't worked because people aren't following these measures. Do you think that you know there's coming there's going to be a point soon because statistics are still rising in many Western uh, highly developed in quotation marks countries? Um, do you think there's going to be a point soon where? There is uh, an authoritarian dictator, which which you know has to keep a veil on to basically not reveal that they are in fact that. Or do you think we're already we're already there?
1: Well, I don't think that Western governance is, is. Uh, really up to the task of forming a dictatorship at this point. Um, uh, the power is too diffuse. There is no way to concentrate it. Uh, the the way it worked in Rome is. The Senate would elect a dictator and then whoever didn't obey the dictator's orders would get killed. I don't see that happening in the West.
0: No, no. I mean, it would take too much organization. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) That's the problem. I don't think there's a problem with ethics or morality there because people, it seems to me very clear. um, And, you know, uh, you've recently written a book on this topic, but it seems to me clear that people were more than willing to give up a lot of freedoms and a lot of rights um instantly without sort of thought on that aspect of it um what did you what did you make of that i don't know how it is where you are i don't know i imagine the russian population certainly has a different uh, perspective on these these ideas than than the uk
1: well the thing about rights you know rights individual rights are sort of a curious thing because uh what exactly is an individual people don't live alone. They don't survive for very long if left completely alone. And, and so uh, endowing such a, a fragile uh, and dependent entity with, with rights of its own seems rather strange. So what is far more appealing is to uh, have communal rights. So a group of people has rights. Uh, limited self-governance, for instance, is, is, a, is a, a right enshrined in the Russian in the Russian Constitution, and generally, the idea is that if you if you create a right, you're creating a responsibility. The question is whose responsibility? If if you say the state has the responsibility to defend individual rights, well, that only goes as far as property rights, unfortunately. And then you're you're basically creating a bigger problem because now you have these in, individuals who are not really independent at all. Uh, Having this uh, sacrosanct right to to some some uh, abstract concept called property, um, so the, there isn't really that much of that in Russia at this point. There is much more of an understanding that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what what do you make of uh, you know America and the UK very quickly giving up everything to uh, sort of bow down to the pandemic? Do you think that's just a sensible decision, or do you think there's uh... More of a you know sort of a slave mentality going on there.
1: Oh, I, I don't think it's uh, it's either of those things. I I, I think that uh, if you have any sort of a medical system, uh, it can't just turn away patients. And in a situation like this, where uh, uh, the uh, the virus is is very contagious, and the outcome very much depends on the viral load uh, a person is exposed to and medical practitioners from being in contact with infected patients develop a much higher viral load than just your average person on the street, their immune system can't deal with it, and they die. So uh, this is a scenario in which uh, any medical system stands a pretty good chance of just pretty much losing all of their doctors. That's been happening in Italy, for instance, to a large extent. It started happening in China, but they they uh, they, they managed to, to stop stop the damage before it got too bad. In Italy now, they're they're forced to in, to import medics, uh, and of course, in any country like the U.S. that doesn't doesn't provide face masks, even doesn't doesn't have protocols in place for personal protection for medical staff, well, they stand a pretty good chance of losing all of their medics.
0: So. You know, you mentioned face masks, what I'm, I'm sure it's something you've been probably watching fairly acutely. What do you make of the World Health Organization's treating of this entire pandemic? I don't know if you've been uh, keeping an eye on that at all.
1: Well, of course, they 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 try to avoid making really bad mistakes and they overcompensate in the process. Um, that, that's inevitable. Uh, I don't think that they could do a better job if if they tried um, and I think that they are trying um, so it is what it is there isn't really a world for a health organization to to save you know we have different countries that are going to follow distinctly different paths
0: but this, I think this is something that's that um, you know a few writers have written about now that the the sort of thin veil of networking and multiculturalism which has been holding uh, the idea of globalism together has been absolutely sort of decimated by coronavirus you know we've seen in you know we went very quickly in the space of a month from liberal tolerant uh nationalized uh policies to fairly hard border control and some uh, light authoritarian measures. Do you think that this is sort of the first uh, death blow to globalism? Or do you, do you think that there was no such thing as globalism in the first place?
1: Well, it's been a while ago uh, that Vladimir Putin uh, announced that liberalism is dead. Um, and now events have caught up with it. And now it's now it's become obvious. But it's been dead for a long time. It's been brain dead for a really long time. It basically ended when it turns out that the empires and the former empires, such as the UK and the US, uh, no longer have anything left for them to plunder, and uh, that's the point at which empires cease to exist. And uh, you know, now it's happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I've thought this thought this for quite a while as a UK resident. It seems to me that both the US and the UK, their power uh, was built upon years and years of very clear uh, physical ownership so very clear example for the UK was a navy uh, and that's not something that's in any sense really relevant anymore um, and as you say the plundering isn't an option anymore but also that the actual due to liberalism I think the uh, the, the 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 entire idea of plundering and uh, you know colonizing is has been um, sort of placed in culture as something so abhorrent that it's it's on one end of a sort of binary good and evil spectrum so it doesn't seem that those are even possibilities so it seems that a lot of the west is riding the coattails of an era but doing so so abstractly that when you look beneath it there really isn't anything there to be found um do you think do you think then that corona is the thing which is sort of uh, making a lot of western nations and the and you know Pretty much the entire West be found out.
1: Well, yes. Uh, basically, the, the, there are some historical nations there. So, Italy, for instance, is, is a, an historical nation, a fairly young one, actually. Germany is another fairly young historical nation. Uh, they do exist uh, in, in some sense, uh, in that, that they're not they're, they're not immediately about to disintegrate like the UK uh, with Scotland going its own way and the rest of it just kind of flying apart. Um, although, uh, y- you know, you, you, do see the differences between, uh, Eastern and East, East and West Germany, for instance, a lot of people in the East really didn't like being reunified, uh, with West Germany on the terms that this happened. The terms on which it happened was pretty much takeover, you know, the colonization, recolonization of the East by the West. And, uh, you know, Italy, I don't know what holds it together, but there is a rather vast difference between the South and the North. Um, you know, Spain, we have uh, Catalonia, of course, which could uh, pop off at any moment. Um, and and if you look at every European nation, you just basically have to say, well, is there anything there uh, that's historical and worth salvaging? Because all we have now is uh, kind of like a, you know, a civilizational graveyard and and tourist attraction which may be worth something because chinese tourists will still want to go and look at it
0: it seems to me i mean perhaps you can relate to this as uh, as an as an engineer and someone who deals with physics it seems to me that the what's happening is actually a. um my, my understanding of this is fairly fairly amateur but it's actually a thermodynamic process you know ultimately it takes far more energy to hold a unification together as it does to uh, allow for fragmentation. And um, when you look at history and and the most successful eras of history, so the policies of um, ancient uh, ancient Greece, uh, the Renaissance Italy, which was entirely fragmented, um, to a lesser extent the UK when it had uh, far more, um, you know, lands dotted around, it seems to me that we're headed towards fragmentation over unification which can only be held together by a fairly um headstrong ideology is this something you would agree with
1: uh it again it depends on what you look at yes in terms of uh, western parlance i think i think uh you're right uh because there's nothing hold it together there's no such thing as western value the only uh the only western value that remains is i think uh uh the right to any sort of uh uh, sexual deviancy, you might imagine. Uh, that's, that's now enshrined as a, as a human right in the West. Uh, not so much anywhere else, though. Um, but if you look at other civilizations that are on the planet, um, they, they function by rather different rules. So, for instance, uh, what holds Russia together is very much a, a common sense, sense of values, culturally Russian values, Unfortunately, they are defined by a set of words that cannot be translated into English. I've tried, I've struggled with this. There's really no way to explain it to an English-speaking person. Same thing with China. What holds China together as a civilization and as a country is also a common set of values, which also are extremely difficult to explain to someone speaking English. just excruciatingly difficult as a translation task. And and, uh, so uh, from the Western perspective, the problem with uh, these other civilizations and the reason the West thinks that there's only one civilization and it's Western, is because the other ones are so opaque to it. They're they're opaque to the point of being invisible, inscrutable. And and this is a major problem because, you know, these other civilizations will just go on and on. Mm
0: -hmm. It sounds to me uh, sort of a problem of language in relation to culture there that the... The English language is so pragmatic and practical, uh, sort of slots together that you know. As you say, there's a, there's other um, countries that I understand their language is also. There's there's um, terms which just simply cannot be translated without you know expanding even a book on the topic. But even then, it would be understood in the English language of something still fairly utilitarian. It seems to me that um, it seems to me that what holds it together then is a tolerance for anything that can be slotted in because only if you have a a culture um that's something which is you know you draw draw a line around it and things aren't allowed in whereas the the english language and the the perhaps the western uh western values now is there's only one which is simply to tolerate everything which can be tolerated
1: well you could say that or you could say that there are overarching con- concepts that are simply missing that cannot be introduced by, by dint of uh, translation or coining a term or something because they're missing in people's heads. This is something that is a, proce- a result of a process of acculturation starting from a young age. It can not be made up for by, by just basically reading a book or, or listening to a podcast. But these things do exist. They're very much real. And they're what holds certain very large countries together.
0: Jumping back to coronavirus, uh, one of the things you know I've jotted down here. Do you think do you see this as a sort of dark blessing in terms of a societal reset, especially in terms of resource limitation? Or do you think that this? I mean, if if you have any sympathies for the uh, the Malthusian argument of overpopulation, um, do you, th- do, you know, will this be anywhere close? And of course, people people dying uh, and people passing away in not so very nice ways of course it's a horrible thing that has to be said but uh on a practical level is there any argument here to see it as a sort of very morbid blessing
1: no i can't possibly see it that way i don't i don't really see population as a global problem it's a local problem is russia overpopulated no it isn't is uh Is Canada overpopulated? No, it isn't. Uh, I can name a number of countries which could benefit from a larger population. Um, Parts of China are overpopulated. Other parts of China are underpopulated. Um, uh, Bangladesh is horrendously overpopulated. It has more people than Russia, and it's Territory is relatively speaking tiny, uh, but nobody nobody really cares about that. You know, uh, what people look at is aggregate statistics. So oh my God, my- how many people we have on the planet! Look, it doesn't matter that you know uh, if if the death rate ex- ex- exceeds the birth rate for a couple okay. of generations. It in in the most overpopulated country in the world, it'll go pretty much go back into balance, and and so. These artificial effects of having uh, having the ability to inoculate children, for instance, um, having access to to uh, surgical medicine in in a lot of cases, uh, antibiotics, uh, chemical fertilizers, uh, transportation fuels, all of those things produce a very large population. And then when those things are taken away, the population goes back down. So there isn't. Some, This isn't a problem for anyone to solve. Nature takes care of these things. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you, what would you make of the argument there though, that, you know, you listed some countries there. So if we look at uh, countries that are statistically overpopulated, we're talking of uh, many Eastern countries, so China um, and Japan. Um, But then also you have, uh, India is a classic one. Do you, uh, and there's there's multiple other examples, so you know, this question isn't specifically directed to them, but do you not think that, it, to a certain extent, it's a problem of intelligence and innovation? Because when we look at some of the most, let's take Shanghai for instance, it's extremely overpopulated, but it's also, um, in in you know, economic terms, one of the most productive, and it seems to be doing extremely well. Uh, whereas some other extremely overpopulated cities aren't. Do you think there's cultural factors at play there, and um, it's and it's not just uh, a factor of uh, quantity
1: well i think it can be both i think an overpopulated region could be uh, well governed and economically productive uh, or it could be uh, badly governed uh, and still somehow have a birth rate that exceeds the death rate over a period of time
0: okay so okay um so what do you see coming from corona because the 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 optimist in me um, sort of agrees with John Michael Greer on this that that you'll see some individuals finally, uh, you know, break through the, their uh, sheepish gaze and realize things aren't what they seem. You know, their their normality will break. Uh, the few things I've got jotted down here are: there's going to be a lot more nationalism. Uh, there's going to be a, a fair amount more personal sovereignty, and there's going to be a lot of distrust for. Uh, you know the, the the structures that we've been talking about, the ones, the unifications. Um, is there anything you know? What what do, what do you see coming from this?
1: Oh, I think the coronavirus is just a, a flash in the pan, but it, but it it will uh, make collapse that has already occurred rather glaringly obvious in a lot of countries. It will also re- reconfigure the world in, in a large to a large extent. So we will have uh, instead of one unified global economy that has pretty much uh, same access to all the resources provided uh, someone has the money, uh, it will instead have, ha, separate into different realms, um, some of which will go on and others will wither. Um, and uh, overall, I think that, you know, there will be a, a, a very large geopolitical regrouping uh, around the resource rich parts of Eurasia and and are various adjuncts and and then there will be everyone else and everyone else won't matter for that much
0: it seems to me that you're arguing that there's going to going to be a sort of patchwork of smaller states uh, and people grouping in different manners do you have any predictions of the ways in which people will begin to group Will it be cultural or economic or ideological or do you think that there might be some other
1: factors I think it will be largely economic, but it will also be based on um, affinities, uh, na- national affinities. So, for instance, I think once uh, um, uh, once the Anglo element is kind of out of Europe, you know, the UK is already out of the EU, so it's sailed off. Uh, the American influence in Europe is definitely dwindling. But once the Anglo element in Europe is completely gone, then Russia will be able to reestablish its ties with France and with Germany and Italy and, and other major European countries with which it has traditional historical affinities. And these will be uh, trade relationships based on, on friendship and long-term common interests. And those might persist for a long time. And then we have all of these countries in, in Eastern Europe which used to be valuable to Russia as buffer zones back, back in the days of tank warfare and, and infantry. But now that Russia can blow away anybody anywhere on earth within about 18 minutes, it doesn't really need buffer zones at all to protect itself. So basically uh, starting with the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, including Poland and including uh, Czech Republic, uh, all of those uh, sort of semi-hostile sort of an- cryptically anti-Russian Russian. Uh, new nations, uh, they will all be just left blowing in the breeze, twisting in the breeze. Their situation will be particularly hurt because Western economies will no longer uh, be able to uh, hire all of those guest workers from Eastern Europe. And so they'll flood back in, into their countries and discover that Uh, In the process of European integration their own countries have been just completely destroyed and hollowed out that there's no production there There's nothing there for them at all. And so those countries could uh, uh, Really become as as desperate and and horrible to live in as the Ukraine is today.
0: And what do you make of the uh, The idea of increased personal sovereignty, you know, we're seeing a lot of people um, understand the prepping uh, isn't such a silly idea you know another prediction of that is people will begin to understand that you know food water and survival isn't best relied on just from uh, a state um do you do you think that people will begin to be uh, take a take a bit more responsibility of their actual uh, needs
1: well I, i'll believe it when i see it um, <laughs> i don't see any reason to make predictions about it i, I certainly haven't seen it yet
0: okay um is, is there anything you'd like to add or, or mention about coronavirus and collapse and um, perhaps the economy, which you uh, we haven't sort of touched on yet?
1: Well, yes, actually, it's, it's sort of a, a preview of coming attractions. A friend of mine who has a, a, a very strong mathematical bent um, has been uh, modelling the, the data, uh, publicly available data, on, on the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the only useful metric there, sort of useful, uh, except maybe in the US, is it's, it's the death rate, the coronavirus death rate. And it turns out that it can be modeled to an absolutely ridiculous precision, correlation of 99.9, standard deviation of almost negligible. Um, and and uh, the logistical curve pretty much defines and tracks it uh, until today. And based on this model, uh, the peak death rate was actually a few days ago. It was a- on April sixth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That this will be all over in in close to a month, and that the, the ultimate number of people dead will probably be on the order of one hundred forty thousand. And that will be over.
0: Okay so considering that uh, flu kills 60,000 a year uh, in the US alone why is this such a big deal
1: It's not the problem <laughs> is western economies have collapsed The no. problem is China decided that the US attacked it using bioweapons and meanwhile the western economies have collapsed
0: So this in in very in in short this is a this is a scapegoat for a multi-generational seismic event in history but we're simply using a flash in a pan to justify the, you know, to cover up the reasons of the effects which will be coming because of something else because of the economy failing
1: not just justify but greatly benefit from it I mean, if you look what China gained from this, it's remarkable Uh, China really is is dealing with a, a, a mammoth task which is, it used to Export products to the U.S. in exchange for now worthless pieces of paper. So it doesn't want to do that anymore. That's that still was uh, 20% of their their export business. Now it has to be zero. So that's a major adjustment, major major adjustment for China. Um, Russia has to convert its uh, economy to a greater level of autarky, and it has to renationalize its elites because uh, up, up until now they they have. have the, the The Russian elites always sort of thought of uh, of, um, uh, of of Western Europe as a place to retreat to if things in russia go bad well now that's not going to work for them, and they will actually have to you know feather their nests inside Russia and not rely on the rest of the world okay. as as an escape um, so these are major tasks and and then there are some minor side effects so for instance Russia has a demographic problem, uh, largely caused by an echo of World War II, the horrendous population losses during World War II, and then also the horrendous losses during the 1990s, after the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, Now, how do you make up for that? Well, um, if you um, have a reason for, for all the Russians living abroad to come back, well, that fixes the problem somewhat. And then if you lock people up for a month with nothing to do, but uh, paid leave, basically, um, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to make babies. So in nine months from now, uh, Russia is going to go through a substantial baby boom. And you know, that's another positive. You you could list a lot of other similar positives as well. Mm
0: -hmm. So, you know, once again, it's sort of a a balancing act. Uh, Nothing's, nothing's binary in this sense. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, a positive for the countries that can sort of withstand it and uh, a larger negative for the ones that can't, it seems.
1: Yes, it's it's positive for the positive countries and it's negative for the negative countries. <laughs> yes, you could say that.
0: Okay. Um, is there anything you are... I believe you've just... Uh, your most recent release uh, was the, the Meat Generation, um, which was November, November last year. Um, are you working on anything else at the moment or is that your... Uh, latest.
1: Well, I, I'm I'm keeping up with the blogging in English, uh, uh, but mostly um, right now I'm working in other languages. Okay.
0: So that's uh, cluballov.blogspot.com. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll put links uh, to the latest book and your blog in the description. But uh, Dmitry uh stay safe, and thanks very much for for coming on.
1: Thank you very much, James. Bye bye.